Father, we're in awe of how much you love us. God, we thank you. Thank you for being almighty. Thank you for being an almighty God who loves us. God, we still cannot comprehend how you loved us when we were still sinners. And God, the grace that you have for us, it's all encompassing. It covers all of our sins. Father, we thank you so much for sending your son. <coughs> Father, I pray that we would understand the weight of that. Understand the weight of sacrifice. And what it means to really lay down your life. What it means for us to lay down our lives for you, God. And to give our lives with a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to you. God, I pray that you would help us each understand what that means individually. What it means to take up our cross, Father, and to follow you every single day. Father, as the words brought this evening, God, I pray that you would, you would just speak to us, God, and soften our hearts to what you have to say. God, I pray that, that you would just reveal awesome and new things. Your right, word is living and active. And God is different today than it's ever been, God. But it's still the same. And God, thank you for that. We love you, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man, you guys can be seated. If you want, you can open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Chapter 3, we're working through the book of Malachi, and we have been for the last month now, and we'll spend tonight and then two more nights as we work through that. And as we've gone through, we've looked at just uh, multiple different things of what God is doing. is He's speaking to these people, uh, the nation of Israel, as they have come out of the exile in Babylon, and they are now living back in their homeland, but yet things aren't what they were before. Um, back in an era when they were reigning and when David was reigning and Solomon was reigning and things were good. That's not the case here. And as we've looked at that, there's been a conversation going on between God and the people of Israel interceded by his messenger, uh, who we're going to call Malachi. We've, we've been in that. But um, just a, a basic summary, if, if you want to go back and look quickly, the last four weeks, we talked about, one, God addressed the people and said, I love you. And the point of the the, the beginning of this message that that the uh, messenger was bringing from God to the people to begin with was, I love you, and I still have a plan for you. Regardless of your situation and what you're living in and the struggles you're facing right now and the fact that you don't see me working the way that I did in the nation before, I still have a plan for you to redeem mankind. And he begins with, I love you, and I chose Jacob over Esau. I love Jacob, and I hated Esau, and we discussed that. And then we went into, God begins to address some issues that are that are taking place, that are bringing sacrifices that are, uh, that are blind, that are lame, that are crippled, that are not good enough. And we discussed what we bring to the table in our relationship with God, whether that's good enough or not. Not to have a relationship with, but are we bringing our best? What God demanded of them in worship to him was that they brought their best to the table and sacrifice. And so the same question was brought to us. Are we bringing our best in life in a relationship with God? In the way that I treat my wife, in the way that I treat my kids, in the way that I treat my neighbors, my coworkers, 
what I'm doing with my money, how I'm investing my time, and all those things. Am I taking my best and devoting it in my relationship with God, in the kingdom of God, or am I not? And so, and then we discussed God addresses uh, further issues with the priests and how they're acting. Last week we talked about God addressing the men of Judah and the fact that they have uh, they have left their wives of their youth and were dealt with the issue of divorce and God's view of that, or at least a progressive view of the Old Testament as it gets closer to the New Testament as we see God working more in man and what he's doing. We saw this shift in, in what God was communicating as before. In Deuteronomy, divorce was allowed. Uh, we, we looked at it in, in chapter 23 in, uh, in Deuteronomy. It said, if a man is unhappy with his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce and she's out, which kind of stinks. But yet we get to Malachi, uh, and, and even in Ezra we see some things come up, and Malachi begins to address, and we see the shift in how they're addressing the marital relationship. And we see once we hit the New Testament, we t- discussed some last week, just we hit the New Testament, we see that the picture of marriage is the picture between Christ and the church. And we see that in Malachi, uh, as he ends the address of these men and what they're doing, and, and saying, I hate divorce or divorce is hateful, we see God's heart that his desire is for us to not be selfish in our life. And we, and we see that unfold further. And so today we're going to talk further about that. Uh, but it, Malachi is, as we've said before, it, it's, a, um, it's a cycle of, there's a, a statement made, there's a question asked, and then there's a response or discussion by God in his address to these people as he's revealing more of himself to them in their response. And so we get to yet another question at the end of chapter 2, verse 17 is where we're going to start. And he says, God says to the people of Israel, he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. It's reminiscent of Isaiah 43 where he says, you've burdened me with your sins and you've wearied me with your lives. And God is saying, you are burdensome to me in the way that you're living. And he says, you've wearied me, you've burdened me with your words. And so there's your statement right there. And then the question, which is, which is very, uh, very much like all the other questions in response to the statements, the people say, how have we wearied him, you ask? How have, how have we burdened God with our words? And he responds by saying, all who do evil, uh, excuse me, uh, how have we done that with their words? And then he says, by saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? And so to, to begin with, when we, when we read that first, uh, the first response to, and there's a statement, there's a question, and then the response to the actual question, and you've said, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased. When you first read that, if you read it quickly, it can sound like the people are saying, hey, people who are evil, that are doing evil, they're actually viewing in a good light, in a positive light. That's not what's going on. And I only say that because when I first read it, I thought the same thing. And so when we get further into it and they say, not only are you asking that, but you're asking, where is the God of justice? That sheds light on that whole, the full question of what Israel is saying in response to God at this point. Where is God in our situation? Which for, was not planned out for us to land this day, but obviously 9-11, uh, you've got, um, 10 years of us remembering what happened, uh, in an attack on our nation. And in that attack, we look at and we see innocent civilians who are killed by evil people. Not only civilian men and women, but children in daycare centers at the bottom of the, of the Twin Towers are, are killed for what reason? Because a group of people hate us. 
And we can look at that situation and look at evil and go, where is God in that situation? And that's a difficult question for us to wrestle with. And so the people are asking here, if you go back again, another, at least taking us back to or connecting to Isaiah, Isaiah 30, 18, is a reference to Israel being patient with patient in waiting on God and trusting in him that he is the God of justice and is even entitled that way. The God of justice is going to bring redemption and going to bring correction and going to fix what's wrong. And so the nation of Israel is sitting there at this point. I'm sorry that I keep jerking my head. This is sticking on me. Um, they're sitting where they're at in their cultural circumstance where they've come out of, again, they've come out of Exxon Babylon and they've come back to a land that is desolate and it's not what it was once before. And they've been defeated by another nation, and they've been basically enslaved by another nation. They finally got to leave as the Persians come in, they take over Babylon, they get to come out, but they're still governed by another nation. They're still bringing sacrifices. We looked at in chapter 1 as God is addressing their sacrifices and says, you're bringing me junk, but yet you, you wouldn't bring this to the governors who are governing you. And so we know they're being governed by another nation, and things just aren't what they were before. And they're being oppressed by someone else and they're asking, God, where are you in our situation? As we've talked about before, as we study scripture, I've come to this, this point where I think it communicates three basic things as we work through scripture and, and what God is, is speaking to us about. Obviously, it does a lot of things, but I, I like to break it down into three basic points to begin with. Communicating, God's word communicates who God is who man is, and then how we respond to him. With that in mind, as we look at this, situ- at, at this statement, where is the God of justice, it sheds light on who man is. That, that's the negative part about what Scripture does, is it tells us who we are. And as we look at that question, it can, it can mean a couple different things for Israel. One, it can mean we've just gone through a majority of a book where God is addressing, here's where you guys are wrong, where you're messing up. You're bringing junk to me. You're not bringing your best. It's not good enough. What you're offering is detestable to me. You're an abomination on my temple. You've defiled my name by what you're bringing. Not only that, men of Judah, you're leaving your wives and you're going to marry foreign wives or at least a minimum. You're engaging in sexual immorality and a worship practice with pagans. And so, I mean, Israel is being thumped here in this book. And they respond with, what about them over there? What about the nations around us? What about the people who are causing injustice to our people, who are oppressing uh, the poor and afflicting the orphans and the widows and not taking care of, and justice is not being served here? What about them? It's It's very much like a child when they're being punished at school. In your, in your intro, when I was a fifth grader, I made one of the biggest mistakes of my entire life, and I decided to take a knife to school on the second to last day of school, which, if you don't know, isn't legal, if you were wondering. And so, as a fifth grader, I show up to school with my knife in my pocket. Well, I get it. Actually, I didn't show up to school yet. I got in the car with the carpool, and I sat next to a guy named Brian, and I have now learned to not use first and last names to uh, indict people. And so when I tell stories, so I'm trying to, to get over that. His name was Brian. I'm not going to tell his last name. Um, so I get in the car with Brian. And I was like, dude, look. And I pull my knife out. And somehow Brian coincidentally brought a knife too. And Brian and I were best friends. And so we get to school and we're doing our second to last day of school. And we're in the science room watching movies or whatever it is we're doing. And he leans over and he says to me, hey, show me your knife. The wisdom 
of a fifth grader is amazing, <laughs> right? We're, we're already illegal. Now let's make it public. And so I respond with, ooh, here you go. Well, a guy behind us sees us and he's like, dude, you're going to get in trouble. So we put it back in our pockets. Well, I'm at lunch, just to make the story, story quick. <laughs> it's getting longer as we go. The teacher walks up to me at lunch and says, hey, give me your knife. And I was like, uh, hmm? And so I, I pull it out and I give her a knife and it is a day from boom. Right? I mean, I was scared to death. I thought I was going to jail as a fifth grader. I mean, they took us in the office and just reamed us about knives and, you know, how it was illegal and they're calling our parents and they're calling the cops and I'm like, I'm, I'm going to be in prison for the rest of my life because I brought a knife. And what had happened was Brian got caught with his knife and you know what Brian did? Hey, Scott, one, two. My buddy took me down with him. Like he's ship and he grabbed me, took my life jacket off and we down together and drowned. It was awful. And so same kind of concept here. Israel is being thumped for bringing a knife to school and they're pointing their finger and saying, God, where is the justice? Because they're wrong too. Another thing that, that could be going on, it probably is some of both because obviously they're surrounded by pagan nations and people aren't living in a godly way. And so there's probably some validity too. Hey, look at what they're doing. Where are you at in this situation? But what it does, it sheds light for us on this concept of who man is. Man is selfish. These guys are living, like I said, in a time where things aren't good for them. Life isn't encouraging. Their, their nation situation isn't what it used to be. They don't have the finances they once did. They don't have the power they once did. They don't have the freedom they once had. The way God had said, you're my people. I'm going to use you and I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to make you a great nation. They're now no longer a great nation. And they're selfish in saying, God, where are you at? Instead of saying, how are we responding to you, God, right now where we're at in our situation? If we look at Job, uh, in Job 38, I always go back to Job as we, when we ask questions of God like this. And most of you know the story of Job. Job was a wealthy man, was a godly man. It, it's actually, the book of Job is argued to be the, the oldest book of scripture. Um, but it's a story of a man who was godly, um, walked with God, worshiped God, uh, in a way to where the storyline is, you've got God and you have Satan, and Satan comes up and says, hey, what about Job? Actually, God says, hey, what about my servant Job? And Satan goes, well, let me take some stuff from him. And he ends up taking his wealth, his kids, uh, his wife goes crazy on him, and is telling him, you need to curse God and die, Job. I mean, that's a good wife right there. And, I mean, things are bad for Job. Not only that, but he's got four guys that are around him, three of his friends and then a younger man who come to him and are telling him, Job, this is why you're suffering. And in chapter 26, there's about three chapters of Job. All he's doing is addressing his afflictions and kind of walking through, this is what's happened to me and this is the turmoil. You get to chapter 38 and God addresses Job and says, in essence, throughout the chapter, where were you? And he goes to, and basically, and he asks him, where were you when, when I set the links of the universe? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I held the gates to the waters back as I created? Where, where were you? Oh, yeah, you weren't here, Job. And again, Job's not even asking. Job's simply stating, this is what's happening to me. 
And God says, where were you? Yet another run, reminder that God's God and we're not. And it's, it's okay to ask big questions and it's okay to ask God where you at and all those things. It's okay to struggle and okay to wrestle. But at the end of the day, there's the realization that where were you? Who do you think you are? And that, that obviously is not what these people are thinking. Again, we're seeing the selfishness. Where, where's the God of Jesus in all this? Why is it just us? Why are we in the situation? If we go back and look at Daniel, Daniel is uh, um, a man who lived during the time of the Babylonian exile. And, and, I, and I'm pulling these stories just to give us some contrast from these people during the day of, uh, of Malachi. You have Daniel who's living in exile. If you go back and look at, at chapter 1, you've got the people of the, the nation are taken out. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, what I want to do, I want to take the best and the brightest, the most attractive, the most athletic, the cream of the crop. And I want to train them for three years and I want to put these people in service to us. And Daniel is chosen for that. And in chapter 1, we see Daniel is picked out. Uh, he's given a new home. He's given a new name. He's given new clothes. And he's given food and training and education. And in that process, if, if you don't remember the story, they bring to the table, the king's table, hey, this is what we're going to feed you for the next three years. And Daniel and his three companions say, we have decided not to defile ourselves with the food from the king's table. And we want water and vegetables. God obviously makes provision for them and they do well and they succeed. The, the point is, Daniel is living in a time where things are really bad. He's been taken away from his home. He's been taken away from his family. He's been taken away from his culture and everything he's ever known. And he's basically been enslaved to the nation that took them captive. And they will be trained for three years and given his Ph.D. in serving the king. And that's what he will spend the rest of his life doing. So probably at the age of between 12 and 17, he's taken. And he goes all the way to in his 80s where he's serving in that way. But Daniel's response to his situation is not where's the God of justice. His response to is how am I going to respond to God in this situation? And he does so in light of what's happening with, the, with his nation. More than likely, the food that's being brought to his table is at the expense of his countrymen and the way that they're being oppressed and the way money's been taken and things are being taken. It's probably, it would be Daniel benefiting from the oppression of his nation. Not only that, it, more than likely, it has to do with some food that they're not supposed to eat anyway, so it's probably a, a, a combination of the two. But yet Daniel doesn't say, where are you, God? Daniel says, how do I respond to God in my situation? But yet, again, we have good light shed upon for us here. Who is man? Man is selfish. We look at situations and we go, man, it's bad for me. And sometimes life is bad. And bad things happen. And sometimes we have to ask big questions. When we lose jobs, when families break up, when we lose kids, when we lose family members, when, when those big things happen that are devastating and tragedies in our lives that will consume us and, and will change life forever. 
what is our response to? He said, it's okay to ask big questions, but again, this sheds light on we're selfish. We're worried about, we're worried about us. Just man at his core is worried about me. So he goes on and says, what you've asked is, where's the God of justice? In, in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And th- this is actually how we got to Malachi. We were going to start in the book of Mark. Uh, and Mark, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, is this quote right here. Uh, and so we have a, obviously this conversation has continued to go on with the people of Israel, but we have a shift into a eschatological view now, which which means, if you, that's a big word, which means, how God's going to end things, or how God's going to bring back to correction what he originally intended. It's probably, it's probably a clearer way to say that. And so there's the shift. If we go back to Mark 1-2, we have a reference to, as Mark begins to tell his story about Jesus, he begins with John, who John shows up, John the Baptist shows up on the scene to do what? To prepare the way for Jesus. And he shows up and begins to preach repentance. And so... Here you have the people in, let's say, four or 500 B.C. Again, we've, we've talked about not being able to really pinpoint the date, but we can get close, uh, just kind of cultural setting and what we see here. And so four or 500 years, roughly before Jesus shows up on the scene, now you have a prophetic word. Obviously, there's a prophet, Malachi is speaking, and the messenger is speaking, but he's giving a word of foretelling. And so the people say now, where is the God of justice in our situation And God responds with, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And in light of Mark chapter 2, we see that that is John the Baptist who then prepares the way for Jesus. And so as we begin to look further at this, it says, "Then uh, Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Which obviously, if we're looking in that, uh, eschatology view, we're seeing the message here for these people is I'm going to send my messenger and then the Lord is going to show up. He goes on in, in verse 2, says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a laundry or soap. He will sit as a refiner or a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, <clears throat> as in former years. And then verse 5 says, So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and uh, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Again, we go back and we have, I'm going to send my messenger and then the Lord's going to show up. And he moves from there and says, I'm going to come in and I'm going to begin to correct what is wrong. Now for these people, what what they would be hearing is in their situation again. Here we're in our land. We're not totally free. We're not serving our, our full purpose as we were before. Our relationship with God is not what it was in terms of how God is using us and how he's involved in our lives so we can see in his activity. And then they have this message, where's the God of justice? I'm going to send a messenger to prepare the way, and then the Lord's going to show up. 
which for, for them, and I'm gonna, not only going to show up, but I'm going to begin to correct, and your sacrifices will once again become acceptable. Obviously, their view of that is going to be, God's going to show up, he's going to fix our situation, we just got thumped for how we're making sacrifices, he's going to fix that, the priests are going to be fixed, the Levites are going to be purified, and they're going to be functioning the way they're supposed to. God addressed the fact that you guys are supposed to be teachers and spiritual um, guides, mentors, those who direct the nation, and you're, you're failing at that miserably. And so their view is he's going to come in and he's going to fix our system to where it works once again. And our sacrifices will be acceptable again. God will hear us. He will hear our cries. He will respond to our call and to our prayer. And he will use us once again the way he originally intended. However, in view of what Mark says, that's not how it plays out. We know that John the Baptist shows up hundreds of years later, begins to preach repentance, and then Jesus shows up and begins to address what God is doing and how he's working in man and how he's bringing about redemption for us. Which goes along with this, he comes in and brings refinement, he brings cleansing, and then the offerings become acceptable. Not that we're now bringing animals, but yet our response to God in our relationship to him. Of those who've been refined, corrected, fixed, becomes acceptable to God. John, John the Baptist, even, we, we see some links in just verbiage, because John comes to prepare the way for Jesus, and as he's baptizing, he says, I'm only baptizing you in water, or with water, but there's one coming that's greater than I am who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so we see, we see this concept playing out, but it's playing out a different way than they're going to hear. And then he goes on, verse 5, like I said, it says, So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Again, we have a shift into this how God is going to correct mindset, which for us plays out in how we live our lives. Your view of how God is going to bring correction affects the way that you live. If your view is, hey, God's going to burn this whole place down and he's going to start over, not only that, but you have the view of where is the God of justice in this situation, then your practical life application is, hey, God's going to burn it down. I'm not worried about it. I'm not going to recycle. Because God's just going to destroy it all anyway. Not only that, but things things like 9-11 that we look at and we go, obviously this is devastating, it's a tragedy. But our response to God and to mankind as followers of Jesus cannot be of hatred. And God, where are you at in bringing damnation to these people? But our response as followers of Christ has to be God, how can we be used, not as Americans, which being American is a good thing. I'm happy about that. But as a follower of Jesus, God, how can I be used to make an impact for your kingdom with those who need redemption? Again, back to this idea of where's the God of justice. 
Our promise from God is not that we're going to be successful, that we're going to be rich, that we're going to be healthy, that our kids are going to be smart and attractive and athletic and successful and not rebellious. And it's all going to work out really, really well because you love Jesus. That's not true. God's promise to us is that I'm going to show up and I'm going to fix what's broken. And guess what's broken? You are. I am. The whole system. I mean, the answer to the question, why do bad things happen? Because the whole thing's broke. Why do innocent people die? Because people make bad choices. And man is evil. Plain and simple. But yet God has intervened to change our lives, to change our hearts. To follow him and to love people, to love the people that hate us. And again, with this view of what is God doing in the big picture as he's spelling it out for these people. I'm going to show up and I'm going to fix what's wrong. The question for us today, what is our part in that? As followers of Christ, what is our part? Obviously, it's, it's to love people, to share Christ with them. But, but what else can that be? What are the sacrifices that we can make to be a part of God bringing back to, restoring back to, what he made in his original intent in relationship with him? Again, the, the, the big point and the underlying current throughout this whole book is this question that he's in chapter 2, verse 17, where is the God of justice? That is the temperature and the attitude and the mindset of these people. And sometimes it is our temperature and our mindset and our attitude to, where, to God in our own situation, our own life, our own circumstances. And God says to them, you don't need to worry about everything around you. I have that taken care of. You need to worry about how you're responding to me with your life in the situation that you're at. Our prayer should not be for justice and for, for fixing a situation and for God to deliver us from, from harm and evil and uncomfortability and all those things. Our prayer should be, God, please give us grace, wisdom, and sustain us to live godly lives, to love you, to follow you regardless of what happens around us. Let's pray. Dear God, hear me now. Thank you for another chance again to come to worship you, to study your word. Um, we thank you for your pursuit of each one of us um, through, you, through your word and through uh, just our lives, God. We pray that you will give each of us opportunities to love people, uh, to love you, to share you with those around us, God. Please give us wisdom uh, and, and strength to do those things. God, please help us to be unselfish uh, and to love you and, and to make you a priority in our lives uh, in following you. Again, we thank you for your love, your grace, your forgiveness, all that you've done for us. Your precious name we pray. Amen.